Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Paleo Valley Beef Sticks. <laughs> Look, I love that word, beef sticks. It just says to me, macros. I can Look, if we're backing up for a second, because this product is amazing. I really, I keep them in my bag. But my big problem with my nutrition is actually getting enough protein every day. You know, one of the things I really love about these beef sticks is that they are, they have naturally occurring probiotics. Um, unlike other similar beef sticks, like, shall I name no, it? No, no, don't even do it. Shall I name it? You know the one. You can get it at 7-Eleven. Yeah. Those products all use GMO, corn-based citric acid products and a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> and it's sort of dubious. And Paleo Valley, on the other hand, uses these old world methods of fermentation that makes the beef sticks shelf-stable without the uses of chemicals and other nasty stuff in that stuff you find at 7-Eleven. Delicious. So one of the things that I'm not a big fan of is I'm not a snacker. I don't snack during the day. But sometimes I'm like, hey, I probably should eat something that rhymes with protein. And then I'm like, hmm, what should I have? And there they are. And then I'm like, oh, high quality. All the, all the, I can get my macros in conveniently, tasty, amazing. And forget all that. They taste awesome. My favorite is the jalapeno, Second but they're that. all amazing. And seriously, any Ready State employee, you can check their bag today, tonight, tomorrow, beef and there's sticks, a beef stick in beef there. Sticks. If you want to try beef sticks, you should have one in your bag right now. Go to the readystate.com slash beef sticks. Beef This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Keon Aminos. What you're thinking to yourself is, do I need these? Why would I take Aminos? Right? You've probably heard of BCAAs, which are branch chain. That's not complete profile. So... I was introduced these a few years ago and they have become part of my daily routine. True? Very true. <laughs> he literally takes these literally every day. And there's a couple of reasons. Sometimes I get up and I really like, I start my day with a walk. I walk the ridge, right? But I don't want to eat anything yet. And so the first thing that I do is I slam. But you also don't want to do it totally fasted. No, right. Uh, so as I get older, what I'm obsessed about is keeping my lean muscle mass, but not always blasting myself out with a ton of calories. It's kind of a fine line. In fact, I have a lot of friends who are struggling. I think they, they don't like to eat breakfast or they're using not eating breakfast as calorie control, right? And sometimes they're a little loose in getting their total macros. We know as you get older, your protein signaling like gets a little less. So you actually have to eat more protein. What's nice about the essential aminos is that they go, they hit the bloodstream very quickly It'll help you hold on to your lean muscle mass without having to add a ton more calories. And so for me, it's like insurance. I'm fed. Um, I've got a complete amino acid profile. I can hold on to my strength gains and tissue quality without having to just eat something right away. And you usually take these as a pre-workout, but they're also great for post-workout too, right? Yeah, it's because once my tank is topped off, then when I go into, you know, synthesis, because you know that actually – I'm not great about eating right after training. <laughs> it's one of the things I've always struggled with in terms of my own training. So this feels like insurance. And uh, frankly, I know it's a big difference. We highly recommend these. And if you want to check them out, go to the readystate.com slash aminos and get 20% off your first purchase. Kate Courtney is a professional mountain bike racer for the Scott SRAM mountain bike racing team. She is the reigning UCI World Cup overall champion, the 2018 world champion in women's cross-country mountain biking, and a member of the 2021 U.S. Olympic team. 
Kate has also earned multiple continental and national championship titles. She is a member of the USA Cycling National Team and a Red Bull athlete. Kate grew up right here in Marin County, California, at the base of Mount Tamalpais, the birthplace of mountain biking. Though she was introduced to the sport at a young age, riding on the back of her dad's tandem mountain bike, her race career started as a freshman on the Branson High School mountain bike team. In 2018, Kate became the first American in 17 years to win an elite cross-country world championship, only the fourth American woman to do so, and had the honor of bringing the title back to Marin and the roots of the sport. Kate's writing about being a professional athlete has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Outside Magazine, Velo News, and Cycling Tips. Kate holds a bachelor's degree in human biology from Stanford University. She is also a connoisseur of tacos, a subject she writes about extensively on her website. I think you're really going to enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Kate Courtney. Kate Courtney, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here with you guys. So I just want to jump right in because I know everybody knows who interviews you that you started mountain biking in Marin County, which is actually where we are sitting right now. And you were doing that with your dad on a tandem mountain bike. And I just want to jump right in and say, is tandem mountain biking a thing? Maybe we should bring it back. Yeah. I mean, tell me more about that. Yeah. I don't know if it's really the cool thing to do, but uh, it was a great way to get out as a young kid. We had this really cool, like really old Gary Fisher mountain bike. It was black with like splatter paint on it, which I feel like was a very kind kind of of like an 80s vibe. vibe. Yeah. And I could like with the seat all the way down, just reach the pedals. But I think for young kids, for me, one of the things that I think eventually made me fall in love with the sport was the ability to adventure and explore. And the fact that the bike strikes this amazing balance where it's fast enough that you can see a lot of things. Like you can really get out there and see a lot of things, but it's slow enough that you can really take it all in along the way. So it's slower than driving a car, but faster than hiking. You're not going to get 50 miles hiking unless you're, I don't know, never say never. But I think for me, when I was able to be on the back of the tandem, it kind of expanded my reach as a six-year-old kid, especially with uh, the state of mountain bikes at the time. I was on like a 20-inch wheel, kind of clunker, super heavy, (laughs) not going to make it to the top of Mount Tam at that time. But all of a sudden with my dad, this kind of dream team, we were able to go out and explore and um, do some really long rides. So it kind of opened up the mountain to me. I just think it's such a cool way to get kids out into nature. And I just have to tell you how times have changed because the way that we have gotten our younger daughter, Caroline, into mountain biking is by putting her on an electric bike. <laughs> um, she rides all the things we ride, yeah, because, except she doesn't suffer the because, way we suffer. You know, as you know, growing up in Marin County, all the mountain biking involves biking straight uphill at some point and suffering a bit. And, you know, when you're like 10, 11, 12, you don't really want to do that. But getting her out on the electric bike, as your dad did on a tandem bike, is just a way for her to learn some bike handling skills, be out there, see how cool it is to be on her bike, go that far distance. Like there's just so many things about it, but it is, it's quite an evolution from the Gary Fisher tandem bike in, you know, the early 2000s to the electric bike. This is, (laughs) I think this is so interesting because all of the best athletes we know aerobically, and you're pretty good. I mean, you know, it remains to be it's, seen. It's, you're okay. You're you guys okay. have a pretty high bar. So. <laughs> <laughs> they all start very early. And I feel like you got all this zone two, zone three, chilling on the back with your building this aerobic base early because 
it's so difficult for young kids to sometimes access these aerobic sports early on because the barrier of like suffering that we all have as a little bit older is just too much. It's just not, it's not fun. I mean, the hills that you're riding as a little kid are just super long. If we just took every ride you did and then doubled it and made it on a heavier bike, you'd be like, I'm not really into biking. At what point did you start to realize you were pushing your dad on that bike and he needed to up his game a little bit? (laughs) Well, it was interesting. I, I love that you say that. I think it's actually pretty interesting to think about my kind of foundation of sports, especially, uh, when I'm talking to the movement specialists, but I think for me, I didn't really start riding consistently or competitively in any way till high school. So that's 15. But before that I played sports constantly. I did all different sports in different seasons and on the weekends was riding with my dad. So I had a lot of exposure to just being an athlete, being out, being active and moving in a lot of different ways, which I think became a huge asset to me in terms of injury prevention, in terms of being a bit stronger, body awareness later in my career, and also with skiing, not being afraid to go downhill fast. So I think With an endurance sport like mountain biking, I actually think there's a huge asset to not specializing super, super early, especially because it doesn't have impact. But with regards to uh, when I started to excel, I, I really didn't until I was in high school. And I started competing with the mountain bike team. And at that time, my dad kind of doubled down and got back into the sport. Oh, Uh, I love it. (laughs) So he was like a, a recreational cyclist. And then when I was like, showed some interest and got into it, he doubled down. He like learned how to be a mechanic. He's going to the races, he's training. And so he stayed faster than me for quite a while and used to kind of make fun of me actually. (laughs) So our joke, when I started training with a coach and I had to stay in zone one, two, like my zone one, two was so slow that my dad would say, you know, I'm just going to go get a burrito, have a coffee, come back. You'll still be right here. And so the time when I got fast enough that I was like, oh, dad, I'm just going to go to the top, have a snack, circle back. I know where to find you. That that was a great moment in our transition. Uh, You're like, I'll just be up here tanning and having a snack while you're trying to bike up this hill, dad. Absolutely. This is a perfect, you know, I was going to say kind of, your aerobic base early, but the exposure, you know, one of the things that, you know, drew me to you as an athlete early on is I watched a lot of your training and what I know about mountain bike racing, it's actually one of the most bananas sports that we touch. It's so hard. And to win a world cup is actually like, I don't think people realize it's a dog fight from the start. The clock goes off and the first pedal stroke is the race starts there. There's not a ton of cat and mouse. It's like, I mean, you, you guys are fighting to the end and it is so technical and hard. Juliet's Instagram feed right now is full of people after the World Cup trying to ride that the World course, Cup like, fresh. Like rookies, have you seen this? It's amazing to watch them. <laughs> it's like yeah. average people falling Like normal people trying to ride that course and you're like, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, not even at limit. Yeah. Your athleticism certainly, you know, has, it speaks to that. And it's, it's interesting, even our cyclists, Levi, is was a really good ski racer and a great athlete and then picked up realized he could outsuffer everyone. Pete Sagan is I think he could be an ath- a world champion in multiple sports. He's so talented and the people I know who know him all say the same thing that he is the most like athletic person. And then we're starting to see it more and more that the cross disciplines is bananas. Do you feel like 
that's common in a lot of the other women in the World Cup, that they're that talented as athletes, not just this one thing? Yeah, well, I think at this point they have to be to be successful. I think it's gotten so competitive in a really exciting way. You know, the last two World Cups we had, there were... It was the first time I've raced a World Cup with a field over 100. I think we had 107 women on the start line in Alvstadt, which is so epic. And also, not that many women, uh, fewer than the men's category. So we're kind of like getting to a a quality of participation, which I think is really exciting and uh, a point where you can't say, oh, but it's less competitive in the women's. Um, I think often more. <laughs> yeah, we would say that the competition is often way more interesting to watch the women race. Yeah, and and with regards to, you know, kind of being a well-rounded athlete, when I started mountain biking, people weren't really doing strength training. And I came from ski racing and transitioned to mountain biking and started really focusing on that sport and I hired a ski strength coach to be my strength coach. And my mountain bike coach hated it. He said, it makes you tired, (laughs) you're sore. Like this is detracting from your ability to succeed. But I think for me at that age, I was riding on a development team with like, I was riding mostly with guys and I couldn't like keep up with them on the descents. And I felt like part of it was my physical strength. Like I didn't have the upper body strength to manage the bike at high speed. And when I did core and when I did, kind of all these things that I was doing in my gym routine, I would get on the bike and feel more confident and comfortable and powerful. And like I had more control over the bike. So I like kind of dug my heels in and said, I'll be doing strength training. And lo and behold, it's, it's really become a focus. And for me, it's been a challenge to continue to evolve and always feel like I'm one step ahead of everyone else, hopefully doing new things or exciting things in my strength training. But now you see across everyone at the top of the sport is doing it and doing it very seriously with well-trained, highly skilled uh, people to help them. Well, you just like literally answered a question I was going to ask you because I want to say as a fan of yours, one of the coolest things to watch on your, I mean, I love the biking and that's way more exciting than any weightlifting, but I will say that we still are stuck in, in the sports world in a universe where it's like so many sports do zero strength and conditioning on the side. I mean, both my kids play water polo and have swam and there's just no tradition of strength and conditioning in those sports. In fact, a lot of the coaches my kids have worked with think that they're actually going to get injured if they weightlift. And of course, Kelly and I are like, it's injury prevention, but I'm glad to hear that it's catching on in mountain biking because I sort of thought that you were a unicorn and the only one doing it. But it's just cool. That's I don't really have a question there. But what I wanted to move on to, even though it's totally not following any kind of coherent timeline in questioning. Oh, you're doing me. You're, is, you're, you're my role today. Good job. We have to talk about the last couple World Cup races. And if you could just, you know, they were pretty bonkers. I have to say that I don't know if it's a new thing that Red Bull TV is covering it, but for us, it's not always easy to watch bike races in the U.S. It's really hard to access as fans. I mean, we can see the Tour de France, but it's you have to do all this crazy stuff to watch other bike races. But we actually had full access to watch the live. Short, full live, short, long course, men's and women's mountain bike. And um, we saw the entire thing. But I would just love to have you tell us a little bit about your experiences especially on the second race, which was totally bonkers. And just color that by saying, what was it like to come out of COVID and to race again? 
That's crazy. It's kind of two questions. There was a lot. There was a lot in there. There's a lot there. So we'll just start wherever. First of all, shout out to Rebel TV. I think that's um, a huge part of the growth in our sport. And actually, it's one of the things I point to um, that's driving equality in the sport because they're seeing amazing numbers for views on the women's races. And I think, as you said, with road racing in particular, if you want to watch a road race, God forbid you want to watch a women's road race you better be willing to spend a lot of time on your computer and potentially some money as well. So glad that everyone has access to that. In terms of returning to racing, I would say it was really exciting for me. I think there's definitely some nerves after not racing for so long. And particularly for me, that kind of mental thing to overcome after last year's couple races in the fall didn't go so well. Um, I think I showed up in pretty good form given the circumstances, but got sick and then got had a concussion in one of the races. So it kind of was just not a phenomenal experience for me. And I think when you have three races versus 30 races in a season, um, bad ones stand out a little more. So coming into the season, I think I've been in great shape, working really hard, super consistent, awesome winter feeling really fit, but needing those race reps. And that's something I learned from last year. And so I went to Europe pretty early and raced in total. I was there for seven weeks and I had eight race starts. So that was huge. And I would say I felt great about building through those races. And I felt like I got better and sharper mentally at every single event, especially given that at the first few events, because of the way they've decided to do the rankings, I was ranked... I think 77th in the world to start with. Even though you are, are the reigning. That's perfect. Yeah, Makes reigning perfect World Cup champion. I was first in the world March 2020. Then we get back to racing and I was like 77th. So it's, <laughs> it was a challenge. But it was awesome, actually, because it took some pressure off me. I was starting fourth row in these kind of local European races and was able to really just focus on having great races, really work on passing. That is something I'm great at now. Um, (laughs) and, And just get back into it. Like, I think after the first race, I decided that my goal for those races was to get the best workout and the hardest workout of any girl on that course. And so at every moment, I'd be like, do I think anyone else is going harder than me? And then I'd usually be able to go a little harder. So great build into the World Cups, show up at the World Cups, ready to rock. Albstadt was a good race for me, I'd say. I think something I've been working on a lot is having good days on good days, not just great days on great days. In the past, it's kind of been, you know, I'll show up and maybe I'm on amazing form and I just, I know it's my day and I'm off the front and I have a great day. But if I'm not and I'm having a good day, that can kind of land you anywhere in the top 10. And what you see in those races is that everyone's so close together. And that becomes super mental. I think, you know, for me, I started really hot in Offset and uh, had a really good first few laps and then had this like dip, which I actually always see when I haven't raced in a long time. You kind of have this moment if you're doing it right, where you're like, man, like, what is everyone going to say when I physically can't keep going and have to stop? (laughs) Like, I I hope I get a flat tire to explain why I physically had to stop. And then... Prefontaine <laughs> says the suicide pace is yes, the right you, pace. Where you're like, this is 
going to be really hard to explain. And then <laughs> recover and I was able to fight and have really good last laps and, and felt like I, you know, in a moment where all of a sudden I'm with like five girls, I feel like I'm dying. I'm like, it's not my day. The lead is really far away. I was able to say, okay, I'm going to reset, see if I recover. Oh, I feel a little better and, and fight for that podium spot. And I think that's something that was a good mental victory for me and, and showed that like the fitness is close, but that mental side uh, really, I think, was the factor there. And then we went to Nova Meso. I feel like I'm, I'm talking a lot. I'm answering a long oh question. This is, no, well, we asked you like 17 questions in one. Hello, welcome to my diary entry. Uh, <laughs> Nova Mesto started out okay. I kind of made a mistake in that short track and just wasn't where I needed to be when I needed to be there. And it was some challenging conditions. So I ended up ninth and was like, okay, you know, but I'm, I'm fired up for the weekend and in really good shape. And my goal for that race was just to go out and do two really good laps in the lead. And I think that was... In the lead group, sorry. In the lead group. So I, I got in the single track second. I'm like right where I'm supposed to be. I had a great lap. And I think I was kind of realizing, okay, like I'm in the position I was in in offset, but I feel amazing. Like this is the next. I'm on better form this weekend and really was feeling like I was in, in the right position until I slipped on a route and crashed uh, and hit the ground pretty darn hard. And then broke my brake lever, which is about as bad as it gets for mechanicals. Like, I think in the replay, everyone was saying they were like, this is it. It's over. But this is where I think my team manager, Frishy, comes in absolutely clutch. Uh, he was obviously a legendary racer in his own right and is a really good team manager. He got over to Brad. He's like, okay, she's coming in with this issue. By the time I kind of limped my way in, Literally, he was ready to go. And Frishy looked at me and said, this is going to take a minute. You need to eat something and have a sip of water. And you need to figure out how to finish this race. And I'm like looking at my arm. Like I fell pretty hard. Like, should I keep going? And he was like, yes, you, yes. And so I kind of like, someone had made this decision for me and laid out how I was going to do it. And I just like snapped into like warrior competitive mode and I'm really glad I did. I was able to get back on the bike and start passing people. And I think this is a moment where, you know, the sports psychology training comes in and I refocus on this goal. And I was like, I'm going to pass as many girls as I can. So I passed 17 girls on that lap. And then I got a flat. And I was just like, you're kidding. When Frishy told Brad that I had a flat, Brad's like, right now in this bike race currently has a flat tire. So I go in, Brad fixes the flat tire. I got back out there and I, I kept my count going. And I technically, some of these were double passes because people passed me back, but it was 57. I passed 57 people, made 57 passes. And I actually had the eighth fastest last two laps, which isn't like something to write home about. But I think given the circumstances, I was very proud of the mental effort it took, not just to keep going, but to have top 10 lap times, passing 20 people a lap kind of hurt. And, you know, with the mental challenge of adapting to that race is like a huge victory. And it shows I went out and I didn't just limp it in. Like I truly kept my competitive spirit and I gave everything I could. To be honest, 
not hugely rewarded for that by finishing 41st, but I think it's something that I'm proud of and you can leave being disappointed, but not feeling regret. Um, And that I think is something that is really important as an athlete and also as a role model. And I think I gained maybe a little respect from some of my teammates, competitors, and, uh, and people that were out there. We have a phrase called snitting that we sometimes see where whitewater slalom, someone misses a gate or has a touch and they blow out and they just float down the course and they don't finish the course. And it, we just, it's considered very low class. If you know, you're not going to win, you just, you give up. And then we also see snitting and ski racing sometimes or just people like, man, they ski off the side. And, and there was that moment where you did not snit. And I was like, Oh, that woman's not a snitter. I maybe could have snitted, but I did not. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, um, what you're saying is, you know, you were disappointed, but not defeated. And I just have to say that I have to sort of paint the picture for people that just how crazy this sport is that, you actually stopped racing twice, sorry, three times, including the crash. You actually like stopped your bike and are just standing there. And in a field of 107 riders, good riders. you stopped three different times, had mechanicals. I have no idea how long it takes to fix a bike like that, but you know, it's a few minutes at least. And yet still you finish 41st. Like, I think that is a gigantic accomplishment. And The other one that I thought was so bonkers is that kid, Thomas Pitcock, who started in like 100th and then like finishes in the top five. And then we learn later he had a flat two and at some point stops to pump up his tire. And I'm like, this sport is so crazy. Like this guy actually had to get off his bike and pump up his tire. And then like still. It's the Hunger Games. (laughs) Yeah, it's the Hunger Games. You know, there was that one guy whose seat dropper was stuck down. So we did the whole final lap and his standing. I mean, it's bonkers to watch this. Like anyone who hasn't watched mountain biking, like go to Red Bull TV and watch it. It's like, it's like very good TV. I highly recommend it, even if you're not a biker. So I want to circle up on something that I think I understood you to say is that race starts matter, that practice, being nervous the night before, warming up, showing up on the line, it all like those reps, even for the best athletes in the world, competition makes you a better competitor. Is that what I heard you say? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because I think a lot of people really like to train. They have only one or two races. And what I'm hearing is the value of like, you were like, oh, I'm going to get a whole, I just came out of COVID where it was very strange and you were you know, like a monk you know, priestess training with your friends. And all of a sudden you were like, well, I got, I have eight opportunities to race in seven days or seven weeks. I don't even know if I can handle that volume. And you were like, I'm throwing in, I'm just going to race. I mean, I just, I want people to hear that for their kids and say, there's so much value in just lining up. I think, yeah, there's huge value in competition. I think first of all, just from a central nervous system perspective, it's a different stimulus. And that's something that I have learned in the last year that I maybe didn't appreciate fully. You can do the power numbers out on uh, on Mount Tam and feel like you've gotten the hardest workout. In fact, most of my workouts that Jim gives me are harder than racing from a data perspective. But the central nervous system, the feeling of pressure, the preparation, the ability to peak, to rest for something and to really give your complete effort. And then the mental side. I think I've mentioned that a lot on this, but I think that's Something I focus on a lot as an athlete, I think it's one of my greatest strengths as an athlete, and it's something that I build through those races. So, for example, when I said that on lap two of Obstat that I felt like I was <laughs> going to die, my slowest lap time, and had to reset a little bit, then 
after that race, having seen that my persistence paid off and that actually, oh, I was fit enough to do that. It was just hard because I'm doing something hard. It changes the way that you perceive that feeling in the future. So in Nova Mesto, had I had the opportunity to race more laps, <laughs> my plan was to focus on those, those early laps and go out as hard as I could and stay up there, if only to determine what's happening at the front for future races so that I can train for that. So I'm, I went up, I determined what's happening at the front and I'm prepared. I'm almost waiting to feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> You're kind of waiting to feel like you've gone too hard. And in the best races, all of a sudden you don't have that lag and you don't feel that. And then you're just unbeatable. But when you're prepared for it, it's like I had a plan. I was like, okay, I'm going to go as hard as I can. I'm going to do two laps feeling really good. If I don't feel really good, I'm going to eat this gel and I'm going to reset and then I'm going to feel great. And so that's just one example of race to race. You adapt to the stimulus and you adapt to the mental strain and, you know, what it takes to really compete at that top level. So I do have a question, but before I ask, I just want to give you some props, which is it was very cool to see how generous you were to the young American writer, Haley Batten. And I really felt like your like stoke and genuine happiness for her was like totally genuine. You know, it didn't feel at all like you were like, oh, oh God, I got this kid competing with me. And uh, like there was none of that. Like your everything you posted and your whole like witnessing it on camera and what you posted like just felt it was so awesome to see that like now you're no longer the young up and coming rider. Like you're the, you know, well, you're the, the world champion. Goat. You're the <laughs> old goat. And to see you support her like that was like really awesome. So I just want to give you some props for that. It was just like, it shows what a pro you are. Thank you. But I, I also, she's also coming for training camp. We're, we're training together for the Olympics, which is really cool. And I think huge asset, but I also, I think something about this that is really cool, but also I think people don't totally understand. It's like, I'm 25. Haley's 23. Like we're going to be competing together and against each other for many, many years in the future. And I'm not like passing the baton, like thrown in the towel saying like, you're the young up and comer. I'm retiring. She's having this moment of proving that she can compete at the front. And that's like going to be forever. One of the most special moments in her career. And I was lucky enough to have that moment a few years ago. And so it was really cool to witness that and celebrate that with her. But once you're at the top, like it's awesome to have an ally from another country. Not that there's uh, any friends in mountain bike races, but off the course to have someone that, you know, I can train with that understands what it's like to race at the front. And that has that same goal and that is representing our country and can kind of be part of this really exciting time in women's American mountain biking. Like, that's hugely exciting and fun on a personal side, but as a competitor, it's an asset and something that I think can be celebrated. And people love to tell the like new up and comer, old person done. But I think it's more like we're entering a phase where we can both be rock stars and hopefully elevate the sport through that. Yeah. yeah and, and I think that two that's cars just, racing yeah. can go faster. And, and I think that's such a good point. And I love that you're like, um, I'm 25 and she's 23, but I <laughs> long I, in the tooth. I do. I think it's such a sign that like the sport is gaining traction here and it's just bodes well for the future of the sport so and for, for women. America. I just think it's so awesome. American and I, I love hearing that you guys are training together. That's so cool. Okay. I'm really going to take this in a different direction. And wait, wait, um, I, I want to jump in for a second Okay, because you've sort of hinted at this a little bit, but, one of the things, 
as an outsider who's gotten to know you just a little bit is you have one of the most bananas, cool depth teams around you. Like you, I want to just talk about uh, your partner, Will, who has no slack on the bike himself. Your dad rides. And no slack on the skis. Your mom is super legit. Like you have this pretty cool group of people around you. You have a great strength conditioning coach. Frishy is next level. Uh, this guy, Brad, you're going to talk about, I guess. I'm not, I'm, I'll I'm just, just tack on Brad. Brad that Brad is hilarious and we're sort of we'll talk about. We Brad. want to talk about Brad independently. But, but can you? He's a separate question. Do you feel like <laughs> that is typical? Because when I see it, I feel it's very atypical for a, a woman at the top of her game, for any athlete at the top of her game, to have such a strong crew. I'm very lucky. I'm a firm believer that mountain biking is a team sport. And it's also just way more fun to do it that way. I think, you know, from kind of the professional side, I have this amazing team of people that are the best at what they do and that have kind of bought into Team Kate and are really not just lending their talents and knowledge sometimes, but are like uh, as obsessed with this as I am. And that is a really cool environment. And when we do that together and see progress year over year and see progress, honestly, day over day, week over week, when you win big and you've done that correctly with your team, that is the best feeling in the world. And those people, if you've valued them and really appreciated their contributions and given them ownership over part of the process. For example, you know, I have a nutritionist. He's like head nutritionist. Everything related to nutrition goes through him. He really has ownership over that and can see that I will execute what he gives me and that it makes a difference. And when we win big, like all of those people are like team caters for life, which is a really special, exciting thing. And for me, just like a joy and an honor, especially like goes down to the Scott's Ram racing team to Frishy to Brad to all to my coach Jim Miller all those people and then on the personal side like the people that are immediately around me all the time in terms of my family and Will there's something about sharing the process with them that is just so joyful and I think I used to feel a lot of guilt about kind of being the the center of attention on those and directing the daily life and and having this huge thing that takes up so much space and needing so much help for my parents. But I think, you know, in recent years, it's gotten to this point where I have the level of support that I need to do my job. Like my parents don't have to do anything except hopefully cheer for me, but they choose to because they love it. And for me having, you know, for example, this next two weeks is the most critical two weeks of my training for the Olympics because we have some travel, we have some races and just the way it's structured, this is going to be a really critical two weeks. And my mom and dad are coming down and my mom's going to cook and take care of the dog a little bit. And my dad's going to ride the e-bike with me and Will's going to ride with me. And, you know, they don't have to do that, but it's fun. And like, we're going to have great dinners every night. We're going to have great training every day. It allows me to train harder than I ever could train without that support, both like the actual not having to make dinner or having a ride partner, but it also allows me to train harder because I'm happy and it's fun. And I don't feel that feeling of, I hate this and I'm suffering and this better payoff, which I think is this attitude that you get into with these big goals. If, if you feel that too much, it's bad because you feel like you have to win to make it worth what you did. Whereas when I have these periods of time where I'm all in and I have those people around me, 
you kind of get to the end of every day and you're like, man, I get to do this. This is super fun. And then the goal being reached is like a bonus. And you know that if it's not, you still have those people there. I would just like to say as a parent that your parents are so lucky, like any parent would be like, I'm in, what can I do? Right? Like it's so like, they're so lucky to be able to be on this journey with you. It's so cool. So cool. Okay. So you sort of mentioned it in passing, but I think it's time that we probably talk about the fact that you're about to go to the Olympics. But before we talk about the actual Olympics, what is sort of the talk of the town among you and the athletes that you, you know, talk with about, is it, you know, are the Olympics happening? What's your feeling? All signs point to yes, but anything can happen in the world. <laughs> and sort of, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I, I guess that sort of like relates to another question I had is you already were going to go to an Olympics last year and that was canceled. And so, you know, what did you learn from having to sort of deal with that experience? And do you think you're kind of going into this one now with like, is your mindset about it better and your ability to say, well, hopefully it'll happen or not? You know, just sort of tell us about what it was like to learn it was canceled last year and sort of where, what your mindset is around the whole thing. Yeah, that's an insightful way to ask that question and, and very real. I kind of got an Olympic year do-over. And I think there's a lot of things to unpack there. But in 2019, 2018, I kind of have had two really big breakout years. I won the World Championship. I won the World Cup overall. I qualified for the Olympics. I was ranked first in the world. So I'm going into 2020 feeling like, universe is on my side. We got this. It's all lining up. If I do all these things, it's going to be great. And I, I think it was a very positive mindset, but also one that was like imbued with every single day, so much pressure where I was almost like expecting this result, looking at the steps it took and waiting for each step to unfold absolutely perfectly right down to like power numbers every day. You're like, hello, today's a great day to have a great day. (laughs) And in some ways, reaching big goals takes that. But in other ways, you know, my coach was saying today that so many of the Olympic years that he's seen, they're just bananas. They're crazy. People are doing well that you don't expect. People aren't doing well that you expect. People get injured. People get sick. People don't qualify. It's crazy. And there's always just like this randomness to the universe that seems to play out more so than ever in the Olympic year, maybe most so in the 2020 Olympic year. (laughs) But it's something that I now kind of had this opportunity to take a break, to have a mental step back and to think about what about my Olympic experience really matters to me. And to me, it's, it is really about the way that I prepare. And it's also about the willingness to just show up and compete. And that's really what I want to do. I want to go to Tokyo as a competitor, as someone who loves to race bikes and is really good at it and do the best that I can to represent my country well and put on a great performance. And I think there's a lot that gets wrapped up in the Olympics, but kind of stripping that away has really allowed me to have some clarity in my process and to understand that as we always say in our team, it doesn't have to be perfect to be perfect, which means the process does not have to be perfect to garner the perfect result. And when you get that, then you think, oh, the process was perfect. But really, it's about showing up and continuing to keep that goal in mind and to really prepare for it. A lot of times people think that the Olympics is the big hard race, but actually a lot of competitors aren't there. Right. Like there are fewer bikes that will be at the at the start. And yet we end up holding this race one day being great 
as like there's so much pressure. What are the things about the this Olympics that you think or that you're worried about? Is there anything on your radar that about because you won't you won't know until you're sort of there and dealing with that? But are there any things that you're concerned about? That you we we, not, we don't have to give it to our enemies, but you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're maneuvering no on secrets. our enemies right now. <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know that there's anything that I'm necessarily like worried about. You're correct that there's less people on the start line, but for all intents and purposes, it's the same because after 30, that's true. You right. hopefully don't see those people. Uh, <laughs> so I do. I'm in the back. <laughs> I see them all. Hopefully you're, yeah, all of the best racers in the world will be there. Something that's unique and that I appreciate about mountain biking is that I get to race at that level often. I get to do that many, many times a year. And within the sport, you know, winning the rainbow jersey is considered almost as prestigious. And to some, like, it would be a tough choice if you had to say, if you and your career get to pick Olympic medal or rainbow jersey, it's not an easy choice. So for me, I think the goal is to treat it like any other top priority goal. That doesn't mean treat it like any other race because it's not any other race. But the way that I prepare for a world championship or the way that I prepare for a World Cup I'm targeting should be the same. And it's the same people and I have the same coach there and I have the same team around me. And if I can control at least the way that I'm approaching that mentally, I think it's going to be a really good environment for me to hopefully use the extra motivation, but not be overwhelmed by it. You are definitely a gamer in so much that you eat waffles. You have a waffle. Is that your go-to race day breakfast? Yeah, that, you know what, actually, when you said, is there anything you're worried about? I'm going to need to start researching what kind of waffle maker I'm going to be able to bring there. You know, there's been some issues in the past with voltage and adapters. So this is what I meant. Like I was, I'm yeah. like existential, like <laughs> racing. I'm talking about like, will you yeah, have, like, what do you, what do you need for, what are you eating for breakfast? This well, is really I, I'm probably going to bring a waffle maker with me. I always do, but it's the voltage. I need to get like a power converter. Cause it's, I've like almost lit some hotel rooms <laughs> on fire. So it's fine. I saw, and you can, now peel into Brad. It's this little microcosm of it looks like there's an espresso machine in the bike repair shop. Is that true? In the portable rig that you guys? I mean, I saw your oh with the World Cup. Yes. Oh yeah. No, the team is principles are high on this team, and the Rocket Espresso machine travels. I actually texted Brad or messaged Brad, and I was like, "You guys, like, there's a portable machine." He's like. Everything is portable if you care enough, was his response. That's a beautiful response and 100% accurate of this. But it's nice. I think Brad and I have a really great routine at the World Cups. And Brad puts a lot of time and energy into thinking about my equipment, making sure it's perfect, and also just like being a really great supporter on the ground there. And in return, I dedicate myself to acts of service, which include making him coffee and hiding Haribo gummy bears every day somewhere. <laughs> oh, my God. That's Hardy why bro, you love. Mach Kinderfro and the Voxner Aben, so. That is why you love Brad so much, Kels. I do. Um, are, you, are you a connoisseur? Oh, he, I mean, he grew up in Germany, and he is serious. Like, almost at any given time, if you just reach into his pocket, like, there's some gummy bears in there. Like, warm ones. Yeah. Well, wow. see, that's surprising. Brad is, he'll eat the pack no matter how big the pack is. 
immediately. Yeah, that's a, it's a serving. It's yeah, a it's serving. one serving. <laughs> there the might be some the cherries and cola. The protein, uh, those, those there's are, protein those in cherry. it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we've been, that's also another kind of fun activity of mine is trying to find new ones that he hasn't tried. I think the the winner of the last trip was in Italy at the Auto Grill, which don't even get me started about the Auto Grill. It's my favorite place. They had spaghetti. It was like Haribo strawberry sour spaghetti. And it came in like a long bag and was like long pieces of gummy spaghetti. So that was the winner. So I have some sort of inane questions to ask you, but before I do, I just want to say I found what you said about having to wait a year to go to the Olympics really interesting because I think for those of us not going to the Olympics, all we've thought is, oh my God, it's terrible for the athletes. Like they're losing another whole year of their life and it's so terrible. But, you know, I love that your perspective is like, okay, like this actually gave you a moment to sort of sit with it and think about how to approach it and, and maybe avoid some of those Olympic year pitfalls that a lot of people do, because I just think everybody's so keyed up about the Olympics. And so it's cool to hear that. And obviously we'll be like waking up at two o'clock in the morning to watch it because we're obsessed with the Olympics, but so we can't wait. What I want to know about next though, is can you please tell us about the taco tour, how you got started writing about it so vigorously and what is your favorite taco in Marin County? So the taco tour has kind of petered out in recent times because there weren't U.S. races that we were driving to. But Brad and I made a point of like doing a little race report and taco review for every place we went, which was really fun. We I think we did it two years ago and people would like message us when we went places where to go and their recommendations were very reliable. So that was a huge positive. In terms of Marin, where's my favorite? I really like Mas Masa. It was great. And then Mi Pueblo is one of my favorite just post-bike ride stops. Solid recommendation there. Solid, yeah. I would say previously, the Grillies in Fairfax, their fish tacos were my favorite, but it closed. So You want to know what's Our weird? Our podcast producer is writing it down right You want to know what's super weird is I was just at the Grillies in Mill Valley yesterday. Oh, How was it? Did you have fish tacos? It was tacos? good. No, I just had chicken tacos, but they were lovely. Okay, so they can be on the list as well. You uh, have done something that's unusual. Under-23 world champion, right? Under-23 world cup overall. Under-23 world world championships under-23 was quite the story, (laughs) if I... (laughs) Pardon me. For those people who don't know, there is a race day, which they call the world championships, which is one day, which is like a big race. And you have won that Mm -hmm. race as a... Open as an elite. An elite. And there's a, such a thing as the overall World Cup winner who has had the most points, the highest aggregate total, which I think is harder to do if I'm maybe misunderstanding, but it, to win a World Cup is you have to be great. A, a lot of days. A lot of days. Is that right? Yeah. Absolutely. It's harder to do. So overall, under-23 World Cup champion, which is just sort of a crazy thing to wrap your head around, 2019, 2018 won the world championships because I was following you on Red Bull TV and it was your first year as an elite. Is that right? It was, yeah. And there was some young downhiller who was super cool riding with you too on Red Bull and they were following him. And then all of a sudden that was like an afternoon. They were like, you just had this day where you destroyed it. And we were like, what this? You're having a good year. And then just, man, like we saw what was possible on that day. And then to follow it up the next year with an overall World Cup win is 
crazy. It's crazy. I don't think people understand sort of these three things in a row. And then 2020, uh, I got a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and then got to spend a lot of time. Went to knit. And I got a dog. And, and, and it's all fleeting. Mountain biking was born in America. Why was it so long between having an American on the podium? I mean, don't we have a depth here? Because it seems like there are Europeans who've been just breathing bike racing forever, of course. But did they just transmit over into mountain biking? Yeah, and why are all the World Cup races in Europe? Yeah, that's part of the success is that Europe is smaller and everyone can drive from country to country and race every weekend at a very high level. Uh, the U.S. is much bigger and that's more challenging. But I think also it's a super important sport in a lot of countries in Europe. It's the national sport in Switzerland. And I think the first time that I went to a Swiss cup in high school, I think it was, it was actually my senior project at Branson was <laughs> <laughs> to go to a mountain bike race. Yeah. That was a stretch, but I will say in hindsight, it, it was supposed to be like an opportunity, a creative opportunity to explore future careers. And I kind of maybe bullshit a little bit and, uh, did this, world cup slash local European race trip with my dad and was like, I want to go to Europe and understand why mountain biking is why they're so dominant in mountain biking. And that was like my thesis for this project, which has really impacted my career. You know, it's the, the thing that I ended up it's true. doing. It's true. It's true. Like I think it is, I think it is a legit senior project. Very legit. And what I saw, it was the easiest project I've ever done. Cause I show up first day going to town they have a kid's race. And I don't mean like a 14-year-old kid race where there's five kids. I mean, they had like 600 kids on push bikes doing, they had an obstacle course component. They had like a race component. And there, there's like 600 four-year-olds. And I was like, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, my work here is done. <laughs> so I do think there's just a depth of kind of passion for the sport over in Europe. There's more race opportunities. There's that kind of yields higher competition, more technical courses. There's there's kind of a lot of factors. But I do think that we're really making progress in the U.S. And the high school mountain bike race leagues are a huge part of that through NICA. There's just so many more kids on bikes. And I think we're continuing to develop that pipeline. I think that's a thing that's really in progress. And we've had amazingly talented racers in the past. And, you know, you were talking about podiums. I... In my career, I watched Georgia Gould win a bronze medal at the Olympics. I watched her cross the finish line of the World Championships in third place. I watched Leah Davison win a silver and a bronze medal in the World Championship. And those women really encouraged me to think, yeah, maybe, maybe it's possible. So I, I think we are, there have been those moments in the past, but to get really consistent top talent, we need a development pathway that starts from getting people into the sport, getting people on bikes, which we already kind of have through NICA, and then giving them somewhere to go when they demonstrate talent. So having, you know, programs and teams that continue to develop that talent and also help kids develop to the point that they will be able to be competitive in Europe. You know, it's so cool. I mean, I think obviously Marin County is so different and I imagine it's way bigger than even when you were in high school here, but our daughter Georgia 
was on the Marin Academy mountain bike team. And she was, I think, like one of the first girls to be on the team. But if you look at some of the other local high schools, like local high school, formerly known as Drake High School, I think had over 100 kids on their mountain bike team. And a lot of them were girls. So I I think it's just a matter of time because I I will tell you one side story is that I ride at Tamarancho, not infrequently, and I have renamed it Tamarancho Bro. (laughs) <laughs> because as a as as a Rofax. old lady late to mountain biking bike rider, I'm always amazed that I am often unless I have come with another woman that I have brought, I am almost always the only woman I see out on Tamarancho. And I'm so bummed for all those men riding without their partners. It's yeah, so, so fun for me to ride with. We my have so partner. much fun together. So so I'm just excited because I do think, you know, I mean, I think your um, amazing success and platform in the sport is going to continue to help, you know, grow the sport. And I know all the high school girls are like gigantic fans of you and follow you. So I think your participation, I think what you said about Red Bull TV actually covering it, I think they're starting to be pump tracks built around that kids are going to more on the regular. Like you see that as more common. So I really do think the sport is going to get more and more visibility. And then, you know, something near and dear to my heart is like way more women in the sport. You, you are a bit of get the women. We need to get the women. I was the only girl on the Branson mountain bike team when I joined, but luckily we had a really good team captain. His name was Will Patterson. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> His name is Will Patterson. You may have heard uh, of him. You may have heard of him. He's right over no, there. No, it's he's right over there. I do think though, for me, I agree. Like it's a bummer not to see more women out when you're riding. I do think it's growing. I see a lot more women now than I did when I first started riding and racing. But I think, you know, changing the perception overall in the sport of what women are capable of doesn't just get more women out, but it also just like changes the vibe. Uh, when women are riding. Like, I think I see women getting a lot more respect out on the trails and hopefully also being just more comfortable in that community and environment and owning the fact that they absolutely belong there. And, you know, you can't assume that you're better than someone just because you're a guy. I think uh, Uh, I certainly- Let me just say is that I learned that lesson a long time ago. It's not a lesson yeah. I need to learn well, over and over again as you drop me daily. Well, and I'm, I mean, obviously your dad is on one and I mentioned it with respect to kids, but I have to say that, and, and I don't know how you feel, but I am such a fan of the e-bike and not necessarily like the crazy person who's like taking out hikers and being aggro on their e-bike, but I just feel like that is giving, it's making the sport so accessible to people who would otherwise literally never do it. Because they can't. And, and so I think hard. I think that's super cool. I mean, you know, again, I think, you know, it's great if people can make it up on a regular bike, but it's cool that that's a thing that is making even more people get out on bikes. Yeah, and in terms of gender equality, it's really important for the men in my life to be able to keep up. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. finally, when you're like, you should come ride with me. I'm like, well, I have an e-bike, so it's no problem. Yeah, I Kelly's totally, like, Kelly's like, Kate's going to be in town. I'm We're going to ride. I'm gonna Good thing a, I have an e-bike. I'm going to need a bigger e-bike. It's really important. It's really cool. And my mom my mom has an e-bike as well. And during, you'll appreciate this as Marin locals, but my mom has lived in Marin for over 20 years and had never ridden or driven Seven Sisters. Wow. The, car, the like, if you've seen a car commercial, that's probably what it was. And during COVID, she got, uh, she had a road e-bike and she, it was her goal to do the whole loop and she did it multiple times. And that's something that's like, that's a real bike ride. That's a fun bike ride with a cool view and a sense of accomplishment. 
And it may not have been totally accessible without an e-bike or fun. <laughs> well, and the other thing I'm finding out as I get older, what people don't realize is that just blowing straight carbon out my lungs day after day is not actually great. Like being able to still go out and ride and be a little bit more aerobic and a little bit less, you know, running the red line. It means that I get to ride more often and then it means I get faster. It means I can keep up with you, Juliet. You know, you mentioned a couple women that were American women that were sort of ahead of you in mountain biking, but who else ins- like is your inspiration as an athlete in any sport or biking? It's a really great time to be an American female athlete. There's so many really cool people to watch and follow. Growing up, I was a ski racer, so Lindsey Vaughn was kind of always my hero. And I always, I respect her hard work. I think she does a really good job on social media of showing that she's just relentless and works really hard. And that's why she's successful. And I think that's a really great message to young athletes like me. And then... uh, who else? Michaela Schifrin is also a skier. Jesse Diggins, cross-country skier. Jesse Diggins. Uh, we're huge fans. Jesse Diggins. Yeah. I mean, all across sports. And I think it's also really cool to see, I think with social media, there's more of a community among those women. So I've become really good friends with Colleen Quigley. She's a steeplechase runner. Or Sasha DeJulian, who's a rock climber. It's I've been exposed to all of these women across very, very different sports, but who are badasses and are doing it at the top level. We have been talking to you for so long, and clearly there's a lot to cover. You have some pet projects that you also do on the side. Could you talk about some of your philanthropy and the money rides and just kind of just let people know and kind of point people in those directions? The big one right now that we've been working on is a Sparkle on Scholarship. So that actually will we will be announcing and letting people know next week, which is going to be a really fun experience. But it's a scholarship that goes to seniors – uh, in high school that are graduating and going on to college. And it's an academic and athletic scholarship. So they'll get, it'll be four students. We were picking two boys and two girls, and it's going to be $10,000, a Scott bike and mentorship from me in their freshman year of college. So I'm, I'm really excited about that opportunity. A lot of sponsors really pitched in to make that happen. And not only that, um, NICA has really stepped up to make that selection process possible and my mom actually, you know, really took on a huge role in that project and has worked really hard to sort through the, you know, 150 applications that we got. So that's been kind of the, the big one this year. Yeah, go mom. Go and that's mom. a real scholarship. That's a real yeah. huge chunk of money. Congratulations. That's so awesome. And and I'll just say right now, since there are no bikes in the world, that's even more amazing that you could actually get a Scott bike. That's crazy. Uh, truly. I don't know if these uh, kids appreciate what kind of uh, fulfillment <laughs> issues they're overcoming. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What's next? I mean, obviously the big next thing for you is the Olympics, but I have a feeling you're already looking past that in terms of how you're planning your life. So like, what are the next big things after the Olympics? What are you looking forward to? And it doesn't need to be about biking, anything that you're looking forward to. Yes. There's a few big things. The biggest one is that I'm 2022. I'm getting married. So <laughs> you're like, I knew that was coming. Yeah. 2021 <laughs> is our, our focus is the Olympics as a couple. We're really, I'm really thrilled to have Will as not just my partner in life, but my partner in doing that. And he's someone that really believes in me genuinely. And he's a smart very kind of serious person. So to have him believe in you, he really means it and uh, puts a lot of work behind that. And um, that's really special. And he's going to be at my Olympic prep camp. So he can't actually come to the 
race, but we're going to Tuscany, his poor will, to prep and he'll be there kind of every day supporting me. And then, yeah, when we wrap up this little Olympics thing, we're going to throw a big party in 2022 and get married. Congratulations. Uh, so amazing. excited for you guys. Amazing. I'm so, I'm so thrilled. That's really big. Mark it on your calendar, September. Will <laughs> the thrill. Will the thrill. Is that his nickname? Well, I don't know. I okay, mean, okay. I think it it's, a, it's a handle. So uh, we've had such a fun time following you on Instagram and otherwise, but where can people find you, follow you, learn more about you? Your Instagram is fire. Fire. <laughs> Thank you. So is yours. K plus fate on Instagram. I think... I'm Sparkle Addict on Twitter. Capel's fate was taken. Sad times. <laughs> and on my website, kcourtney.com, but mostly Instagram, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. If you good insights and also keep I mean, you are so good at being transparent about all the fun and goofiness and that you can be a pro and deadly serious and still have a life and be a person. You do such a good job of that. Yeah. Thank it's you. so obvious that you have so much joy for what you do. And I mean you're serious and a total savage, but um, combined with a lot of fun and joy, which is really fun to see. Thank you. I think, yeah, that was a big learning of the last year is that that's actually kind of my superpower. I think um, in the past, you know, just my perception of pro athletes was that they always had to be really serious and that, you know, everything had to be about no compromises, big sacrifices. And I think actually, if you're able to be just as serious and just as dialed, right below the surface, but fun and sparkly and, and have a great balanced life around that. That's when the real magic happens. And it makes it the long game. You can do it. The long game. You don't game. die and burn out as a bitter, angry person. Nope. Lisa. Still having fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, Not thank to name you, names. <laughs> thank you so much, Kate, for being Kate, with you're us. the best. Thank you so much. It was, it was lovely. It's like fireside chat with two of my favorite people. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.